Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Hey, I'm well, John. You doing all right today? Yes, sir. I sure am. Uh, It's been a busy week and it pretends to be a busy day and I'm looking forward to doing another podcast with you. I'm looking forward to it too. So uh, thinking about it, uh, I get this question a lot from employers and uh, it's it's a good question. And I think it's one we don't talk about enough, but they ask me, uh, say, Frank, how, how is it that OSHA showed up at my door? We were running along. Everything was hunky-dory. We were, it was all sunshine and lollipops. And all of a sudden I get a compliance officer at my door. And um, so I, you know, I give them the, the same spiel that you and I are always uh, telling clients, the reasons that, that OSHA finds their way to their door. And there's a few of them. You've got the whole priority ranking system, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But to introduce us to the topic, John, you want to you want to give our listeners a little bit of an overview of the reasons that OSHA finds uh, its way to their door. Sure, Frank. Give like the really short answer, or I could give the long answer. So I'm I'm going to do the kind of short answer. Programmed and unprogrammed inspections, Frank. That's how employers get inspected. That's how they're selected. That's a great way to put it. Uh, so obviously, programmed inspections are those emphasis program areas where the employer, for instance, um, uh, identifies an employer uh, that is in a specific industry or is exposed to a specific hazard. Uh, during COVID, we had all those COVID inspections, and so they'd put all the all the hospitals and medical providers on a list, and they'd randomize that list, and they'd start inspecting from top down. But they do that with a, a lot of different emphasis areas, you know, forklifts, noise, falls, so on and so forth. And we'll we'll reserve the breakdown of that for for a different uh, for a different podcast. But the unprogrammed inspections are the ones that. I think we should focus on today because those tend to be the ones that receive priority in terms of uh, where OSHA is going to allocate its attention first. Uh, so uh, with that foundation laid, giving the long answer instead of the Bartles and James answer, that I, I, that's me, I just gave the long answer. Do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, unprogrammed part? Sure. And, and I would add on, on to your explanation with respect to the programmed inspections, you know, David Walston, you and I did a podcast a few weeks ago about the site-specific targeting. That That's another example of a programmed inspection. Um, but with respect to unprogrammed inspections, you know, kind of as your explanation or your introduction alluded to, you know, these are things where, you know, the inspection itself is unplanned. It, something has happened that has triggered activity on the part of OSHA. And, and, and there's you know, four primary ways that those unplanned inspections um, start or, or, or four basic triggers to those unplanned inspections. One of those is an imminent danger situation where, 
OSHA becomes aware of something that is of you know imminent danger. It, it, it poses imminent, immediate, um, direct high likelihood of causing some sort of health or safety uh, issue to employees. The second type is when we use this term, sometimes I think people think we're being cold or callous, but it's just kind of the industry term for it, the fat cat inspection, the fatality or catastrophe inspection. Um, so that, you know, fatalities are, are kind of self-explanatory. Um, you know, somebody dies in the workplace, um, there's an inspection. The catastrophe is a little bit different. So the catastrophe is, uh, you know, there's a construction site and there's, you know, some sort of collapse that happens at the, at the construction site. So that causes a ramp up of OSHA inspectors. The next category is kind of the next level of priority is complaints, whether they be employee complaints or union complaints or, you know, even quite frankly, third party complaints. You know, somebody's aware of something or somebody sees something and calls in OSHA. And the last one's referral. So another agency uh, is doing, you know, some sort of enforcement work. And then, you know, as an example, EPA and OSHA have a pretty tight partnership. So if EPA, you know, particularly in the RMP PSM, context observe something or detect something a lot of times they'll make a referral to osha and you know after your rmp inspection or while your rmp inspection is going you know all of a sudden you have osha there doing a psm inspection but that that's the four basic categories frank i I think that's a good explanation of the of of how osha classifies the four categories you know with regard to imminent danger while it it is a standalone category and OSHA's list of prioritization, uh, they have to find out about an imminent danger one way or another, and that can be through a, 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 what you call a fat cat report, what we call fat cat reports that employers have to call in uh, as a matter of law, they have to call and report on themselves. Uh, it could be about a complaint from an employer or a union, it could be a referral from somebody else also, but also imminent danger can be a result of something as simple as a compliance officer driving by and seeing uh, some some type of work going on in plain view that constitutes what they would characterize as an imminent danger. The reason that OSHA prioritizes uh, these types of inspections is because they do have limited resources. By limited resources, means they only have so many compliance officers, you can only go out and do so many inspections. So, uh, imminent danger. They start with imminent danger because that's the that's what OSHA has deigned as the most significant and most valuable use of their resources to try to correct a hazardous condition before anybody gets hurt or killed. And we're going to have a separate podcast talking about imminent danger and OSHA's authority under imminent danger in terms of their authority to enjoin the workplace from continuing work or to issue imminent danger notices and the impact of all that. And we'll have a podcast on that uh, in the very near future. Uh, the fatality, the, the, the catastrophe inspections, uh, those are presumably ranked number two on the list because OSHA is interested in evaluating whether there's a likelihood for a repeat of those fat cat events. They want to try to ensure that it's not going to occur again. And then uh, employee complaints and referrals, that, that makes third on the list because obviously they want to respond to those complaints. But even if you call in a fat cat, John, even if an employee does complain, does that guarantee an inspection? No, absolutely not. It comes as a shock to a lot of people. You and I have only been working together for a couple of years now, and, and I, I know you 
have a lot of experience in this, that you can have a fatality and no inspection. Although typically that doesn't mean no inspection at all. Typically it means no inspection with an inspector actually coming out and doing the inspection. And, and instead, you know, it means that you get a rapid response investigation, or I think you call them R2Is. I refer to them as RRIs. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not necessary in a fatality in every instance for OSHA to come out, or it's not necessarily true that OSHA comes out in the instance of every single fatality. And with employee complaints, I don't know what the numbers are, but I assure you, in my experience, there are tons and tons and tons of employee complaints that are filed with OSHA. And for one reason or another, and I think the biggest reason probably being that OSHA doesn't think the complaint is all that terribly credible. Yeah, OSHA does not do an inspection. I, I don't know what your experience is, but I assume it's similar, Frank. It certainly with regard to employee complaints is very similar. Uh, in fact, I feel like we get more, more RRI letters from employee complaints than we get inspections from employee complaints. I find that employee complaints generate inspections typically in situations, uh, in one of two situations, one where the employer has been inspected before and the employee complaint somehow touches on the topic of a previous inspection, or I find that employee complaints lead to an inspection when that employee complaint is about either a regional emphasis uh, program initiative or a national emphasis program objective, right? So, for instance, if uh, you get a complaint about lockout, tagout, or a complaint about guards being removed, then I think you tend to get more inspections uh, under uh, from an employee complaint for those types of items because it is an emphasis program initiative for this area. I have yet to see an employee complaint alleging uh, an absence of guarding or or defective, allegedly defective uh, energy control procedures uh, that did not result in an inspection. My client base is a little bit different than the average bear probably just because, you know, it involves, you know, certain sectors that are a little unique. And, and, and you know, one of the unique features of one of the sectors I work heavily with is the fact that they have locations where because employees work around the clock, have living quarters, et cetera. And you would be shocked at the number of complaints we receive because people are upset about allegations that there's bed bugs in the facility, that the barbecue pit is too close to, you know, someplace where they're storing emergency supplies, of, and I'm not talking about big supplies, small supplies of gasoline or where the showers aren't hot enough for their liking, et cetera. And, and I am stunned at the number of RRI investigations we respond to based on those types of things. But outside of that sector and outside of those kind of living quarters type situations where you know, you're really talking about not so much the working conditions of the employee, but sort of the combined working and living situation of the employee um, due to the nature of the work, I, I think you're absolutely right. If it, if it falls outside of a national or regional emphasis program, OSHA is not going to inspect it. Or, or OSHA is not going to open an RRI investigation for it, or, or to use your term, an R2I. 
going back talking about the fat cats, it, obviously one of the reporting events under 1904.39 for fatalities or what OSHA has determined to be catastrophic events, one of those elements is a hospitalization. And I'll tell you where I get surprised is the number of RRI or R2I letters that our clients receive uh, for mere hospitalizations. It's interesting because it's always such a struggle to determine work-relatedness in that short amount of time and and when we found out about the hospitalization and whether it's an inpatient hospitalization that qualifies under the reporting standard, it's, it's really a stressful time, especially for the client that doesn't deal with this question maybe ever. Maybe it's the first time they've ever had to deal with it. Frequently it is. And so go to all the struggle and build up all the stress, worrying about what's going to come of the inspection for this uh, inpatient hospitalization. And then... Um, kind of in an anticlimactic but very appreciated way, OSHA issues an RRI letter for the hospitalization saying, yeah, okay, just tell us what happened. Uh, And again, it's for those hospitalizations that are unrelated to an emphasis program that is maybe a a trip and fall or or an instance that's not obviously related to a more targeted issue that OSHA is focusing on uh, nationally or, or locally. And um, I've noticed that all over the country. I'm, I'm, when you say about being surprised and, and clients being surprised that OSHA doesn't come out, I mean, that even surprises me that they don't come out for some of those hospitalization reports. I'm appreciative of it, and I think it's the right decision. Don't get me wrong. But I had always figured when they passed that, when they amended that standard in 2016, uh, to to require reporting for any hospitalization, any inpatient hospitalization, I thought mm-hmm. would see more inspections from it. But really, uh, I think I've I've mostly seen RRIs. What about you? The RRI concept is probably a podcast in and of itself, and you know, reporting hospitalizations, deaths, what have you. That's also probably a podcast in and of itself. Look, I've had a bunch of experiences where, you know, we've had some sort of death on the on the company site, or we've had hospitalization, and you know that's been exactly the experience where it's an RRI, and and in some cases even with deaths and hospitalizations, you don't even get an RRI out of it. And I think some of it is in how you craft, and not not that you're, and in, in, yeah, I'm, I'm very strong with clients about. You know, we never say anything, we never write anything, we never do anything that is going to, to raise any questions about whether we were truthful and honest in, in our interactions with OSHA or anybody else. You know, we're going to be candid, we're going to be direct, but there's, you know, ways of saying things that, you know, if you put enough color around it or if you keep this narrative tight, I have a tendency to kind of... I think, you know, when they're received by OSHA, you know, they, they kind of look at it and say, okay, well, you know, clearly this isn't something that is a result of something that happened in the workplace, you know, some some exposure in the workplace, some incident in the workplace. And while these folks called this in, you know, this, this isn't something that requires our attention. Uh, because you're right. I mean, you know, there's a lot of decision-making to be made in, in a very short period of time, in a very stressful period of time. I recently helped a client with one where, you know, somebody fell in the workplace as a result of what appeared to be a personal medical condition. 
And, you know, they were to their credit, you know, they picked up the phone and called OSHA and said, Hey, we had somebody that had to go to the hospital. He had, it had to be flown out and, you know, he's, he's in ICU for several days, et cetera. But you don't know that when it happens, they see a guy, you know, on the ground bleeding from his head, they're duly and appropriately upset. And, and, you know, they, they make a call based on, you know, what they see in kind of that heightened emotional state. And, and so, um, you know, I think that OSHA recognizes that. I think it also goes back to something that you mentioned very early on, Frank, which is the the resources that OSHA has. And that's, again, probably a podcast in and of itself. But, you know, my experience with compliance officers is, is you know, they carry, you know, 30 to 40 cases at a time. And, and you know, if, if you look at the number of inspections annually and, and you extrapolate it to the number of workplaces, you know, it the last time I did the calculation in order for OSHA to inspect every workplace in the country with the resources they have and at the pace they take, it would take over a hundred years. So, I mean, I think it's just a prioritization of the resources. Well, that's certainly what the, the OSHA's field operations manual suggests, right? Is that the area director has to hear each of these and then make a decision about where to send resources uh, and then, you know, as uh, we've developed over time, uh, we have the resources where we're able to identify where there's an increase in inspections and, and follow those trends just based on statistics. And so we know at some parts of the year, uh, OSHA's got better staffing, fewer people are on vacation. Uh, but we also know that some parts of the year, they have a lot less staff available because of because of their own uh, availability for for personal or other reasons, and uh, and so with a, a little bit, and this will probably be another good podcast subject that we can we can weave in at a later time, unless you have this data off the top of your head right now. Generally, we know that early in the year and late in the year, we have a late in the year meaning more around the the fall time, there are more compliance officers available. Uh, for more inspections. And so they're more likely to be conducting inspections on close calls, whereas in summer and, and uh, over winter, December timeframe, uh, especially around all the holidays, uh, there's less availability of, of compliance officers. And so even fewer resources available to conduct inspections, which we haven't evaluated this and maybe we should. I feel like we see an increase in RRI letters in the summertime and in the wintertime. Do you have any sense of that, John? I mean, my experience is consistent with that, Frank. I mean, and and I would say that, you know, and, and look, I'm very appreciative of the fact that I typically see a pretty nice slowdown, you know, starting about December 15th through at least the first week of January. Um, and that, you know, most of the work doesn't require we go anywhere. We can just, you know, respond to RRI letters, assuming we don't have a hearing set someplace. But um, no, I think, I think you know, my experiences and, and, you know, certainly the anecdotal evidence that I've received from, you know, folks both with OSHA and, you know, our colleagues has, in, you know, supports that, that you know, those are those are times where enforcement activity goes down from the standpoint of in-person enforcement activity, and it, it transitions to the RRI type uh, response. But you know, on the point with the RRI letters, Frank, you know, the fact that you get an RRI letter and respond to it doesn't mean that the process comes to an end right there. And, and I don't know what your experience has been, Frank, and I'd be curious to to know about it. 
but there's a lot of times we submit RRI responses where, you know, we explain everything. It's not going to result in any sort of inspection, but OSHA has asks after that, you know, basically whether it's to verify something has happened or to provide additional information or, you know, to, to, to provide, you know, kind of a check-in sometime thereafter. You know, I think clients sometimes get a little upset by that, but I mean, it, it's, you know, the RRI process is, is a convenience for everybody and the convenience can't be without teeth. At least that's kind of my explanation to clients about it. I, I don't, I'd be curious to know what your experience is. I think you've got to be careful uh, in responding to the RRI with the, the primary goal of satisfying OSHA that you've addressed the alleged hazard and that it's not likely to result in death or serious injury to an employee. Yeah, and uh, I feel like every time a client has been able to communicate a clear plan of action and in full abatement of any risk or or excellent abatement of any risk, uh, it, it hasn't gone any further. OSHA just closes the case. I feel like in the instances where the employer maybe just flat out denied there was a risk or a problem or 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 didn't address it, uh, or didn't respond, uh, that if, if they didn't respond to the letter at all, those are the times when OSHA tends to come around and inspect anyway. So I think uh, you're right. I, I think it is a convenience. It does have teeth. But if an employer does a good job thinking through the alleged complaint, or the alleged hazard, sorry, it's not an alleged complaint. If they go through and evaluate the alleged hazard and do a good job of explaining to OSHA why it's not an issue in the workplace or why they've corrected the workplace so it's not an issue, I think that's when you get good resolution. I just plan on doing an RRI presentation uh, here in the next week or two. No, I agree, Frank. And, and you know, this might be a point to kind of start wrapping this up and bringing it home. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned something in that last statement that you know, I think it applies kind of regardless of the type of inspection, regardless of whether it's a, a complaint or fat cat or imminent danger situation, which is, you know, something that drives me nuts. You mentioned the fact that you can't ignore the RRI letter and, you know, whether it's the RRI letter or anything else that comes from OSHA, don't ignore OSHA. If you get something, you have to act, you have to take it seriously because it does nothing but irritate them if you don't pay attention to them. They're just people with uh, jobs to do. And uh, if, if you can help them with that job uh, by doing a good job answering an RRI, then you can avoid this whole ranking under, uh, under the field operation manual that we discussed today uh, that begins with the imminent danger and ends with the uh, programmed inspections. So appreciate everybody listening today. We'll be back next week with a new topic. Look forward to talking then. Sounds good, Frank. Look forward to it. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.